Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Friday, March 17th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here today with producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, happy freaking birthday, brother. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, I know I've been talking my birthday up like every single week on this show, <laughs> but now that it's here, I'm just kind of like, damn, you know, I'm getting towards that 30 yeah. mark and I'm like, this is a little depressing. You know, it's a little depressing, but I'm yeah. still stoked. Um, 30 is the new 20. That's true. That's true. You know, my dad actually told me that recently too. He's like, you know, you're you're younger now at 30 than you were, you know, 40 years ago when I was 30. And I was like, oh, fair enough. Okay, cool. That's that's interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm taking that one to my grave. But yeah, I'm stoked to uh, celebrate it with with all my best buds besides you, of course. Yeah, I'm running a half marathon on Sunday and then promptly retiring from distance running. So you'll <laughs> never have to hear me talk about it on the show after um, after this episode. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, um, good luck, first of all. And second of all, I am a little bit glad selfishly because maybe you won't miss any anything else in the future. Yeah, <laughs> because you won't be doing long distance running. And that's actually why I no longer want to do long distance running. <laughs> I missed out on a lot of fun things with my friends. So uh, I don't know, five and 10 yeah. K's, you could you could do those and have a social life. Marathons yeah. and halves require me to miss your birthday two years in a row. So won't be doing that anymore. <laughs> And uh, yeah, what do you say we do this thing? Let's do it. Let's rip it. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by CNN's Elia Nilsson, who writes, Biden administration approves controversial willow oil project in Alaska, which has galvanized online activism. All right. For me, this is disappointing news to start the week as the Biden administration approved a decades long oil drilling venture in the Natural Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. The willow project should generate 600 million barrels of oil over the life of the project which will be great for energy production when the project actually starts producing oil, which won't be for another several years. The major downside is that this project will release 9.2 million metric tons of carbon pollution every single year, which is equivalent to adding 2 million gas cars to the roads, as this article points out. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska praised the decision and said that this would add thousands of new jobs and billions of dollars in revenue for the state. Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation and a coalition of Alaska Native tribes and groups also said that this would create a much-needed new source of revenue and jobs for the remote region. Which is totally fair, but the reason that I said this is so disappointing to me is because there were millions of signatures that were added to a change.org petition to stop the Willow Project from moving forward. Environmental advocates have been siding with climate groups and Alaskan natives that argue that the project would pose health and environmental risks. Earth Justice has been getting ready to challenge this decision in court and intends to argue that the Biden administration can protect Alaska's public lands by reducing carbon emissions. The Willow Project would directly add to those carbon emissions. 
ConocoPhillips, who owns the Willow Project, lobbied the Biden administration and the Interior Department for months to approve all three proposed drilling pads. The administration had looked into reducing this to two pads and reducing the projected oil extraction to 70%, but ConocoPhillips said the project wouldn't be economically viable without three pads. The project was initially approved by the Trump administration and the Biden administration felt that they had few options to cancel or change the project. Yeah, and that's ultimately what this is coming down to. The more that I read about this, it seems like it was basically going to be a legal headache to reverse it. And for that reason, they kind of pushed it forward. So in tandem with this, President Biden made the entire U.S. Arctic Ocean off limits to future oil and gas leasing. New rules to protect more than 13 million acres in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska are reportedly on the way next. The Biden administration will move to protect up to 16 million acres from future fossil fuel leases. Alaskan Republican Senator Dan Sullivan said that these protections are a way to lock up the state, so we can probably expect the protections to be challenged in court pretty soon. Many environmental groups felt that the damage caused by the Willow Project won't be offset by the protection of the other Arctic regions. And that's sort of where I'm at right now. You know, it's it's great that if if I was to just open up a newspaper or open up the Internet and see that President Biden moved to protect 13 million acres in the Alaskan National Petroleum Reserve, I'd be ecstatic. Yeah. 16 million acres total from fossil fuel leases. I'd be very happy. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like at what cost? This is a major, I don't want to say slap in the face to environmentalists because to me, it's like, it's almost more than that. You know, this was something that for years, this has been challenged and something that environmentalists have been saying, look, we have all of the data we need to show that this is going to do more harm than good. Yeah. And it still got pushed through by now two administrations. Yeah, I mean, Biden, you know, must have had his hands tied on this one. And it goes to show you, hey, it does matter who we put into office. Like some things that they, they you know, write into law are unreversible and we, we can't go back and change it and we can't go back and fix it or, you know, alter it to, you know, our standards now. And it matters who you put in office. And this is a perfect example of that. Unfortunate that the project got pushed through, but... Even that 70% would have been nicer, you know, that that oil extraction to 70%. Yeah, and that's where lobbying gets so incredibly frustrating for me because, like, it's, it says right here that ConocoPhillips was lobbying Congress and lobbying the White House to basically say, hey, we can't make this work without all three drilling pads. We need as much oil as we can get or else it's not economically viable. Well, maybe it's not that great of a project then. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think this could go on forever if we got onto this tangent, but like getting big money out of, I was going to say federal politics, but state politics too, like getting big money out of us politics. Is that ever going to happen? Probably not for being realistic, but man, would that make a huge difference in things like this? Yeah. It's like shocking that lobbying is a thing that actually goes on and is like legal. No, you're, you're right. And, And like the more you hear about it, the more where it's just like, money gets pumped in to get things like this passed, you know, it's just at the end of the day, what are you going to care about more, your bottom line or the well-being of your country? And and unfortunately, in this case, we're seeing the former. 
So one quote from the article to close out this part of this discussion is from Tiernan Sittenfeld, who's the senior vice president of governmental affairs for the League of Conservation Voters, said, this is in direct conflict with the Biden-Harris administration's goal of cutting climate pollution in half by 2030. And it's now all the more important they double down on executive action that maximizes climate and conservation progress. So I don't want to say that this is you know, a kill shot and that we're not going to be able to reach our goals by 2030, but it's definitely a gut punch. Yeah. And our next story is from E&E News, and it kind of serves as a follow up to this one. Heather Richards writes, Biden closes Arctic to oil after Willow. Yeah, we, we do want to cover the flip side of that last story in full. And, you know, like I mentioned, I would have been ecstatic if I read this news alone. So let's get into I don't want to say the good part because it came at a cost, but the silver lining here. President Biden declared the entire Arctic Ocean off limits to oil and gas leasing. This article also points out the international commitments that the U.S. made to lower our carbon emissions and build out clean energy programs. Another thing it says is the same thing that that last article said. The president had limited options to call off the Willow Project. Caveat doesn't say no options, so... That's why I'm still kind of disappointed in the president right now. The problem here, according to the author, is that environmental groups worked really hard to fight the Willow Project. So they now look at the federal protections for public lands with skepticism. When the Biden administration said they could scale back the Willow Project, environmental groups continued to fight to block it entirely. Yeah, and that skepticism just comes directly from environmentalists had a really good case with millions of signatures on a petition behind their cause. And it still didn't work. So, of course, they're going to be skeptical about what comes next and what kind of environmental protections come next. When, like Nick said in the last story, those are probably going to get challenged in court also. Yeah, 100%. An analyst for Clearview Energy Partners, LLC, called this one last fossil fuel bender before America goes green and sober. (laughs) And that, yeah, like that's sort of my main issue with this news. I, I'm happy with the extra protections. Do not get me wrong. But I don't see how that is supposed to make up for the damage that the Willow Project is going to do. I think the Willow Project as a whole is kind of a short-term fix that's going to lead to major long-term problems. The White House over the weekend defended the president's climate record and the course the administration is currently on with investing in the transition to renewable energy and EVs. The Center for American Progress estimated the lifetime emissions of the Willow Project would equal the annual emissions from a third of this country's coal-fired power plants, which goes against the strong climate record the White House claimed. Yeah, exactly. You know, anytime one project is going to be equal to a third of our current coal power plant emissions, it's probably not something you'd want to loop in with a strong climate record. But I want to read an excerpt from the article really quickly. It says, on its own, Willow doesn't change the oil production picture for the U.S., the largest oil producer in the world. But the project is significant in Alaska because it was viewed as part of a so-called renaissance on the state's north slope. It's one of a handful of large oil and gas discoveries in the region in recent years that could help slow the decline of Arctic production that undergrids the state's economy and delivers direct income to all Alaska citizens in the form of annual checks. So for Alaska, I get why people supported this. For Alaskan politicians who are focused on Alaska first, 
I get it. Yeah. But you have to take the greater picture here and look at the country and look at the world and say, sure, this is going to kind of increase oil production. I mean, this this says Willow on its own isn't going to change the whole picture for us. Yeah. But it, it boosts our oil production. That's good in the short term. What are we going to say about this in 27 years when 2050 hits and we have this reckoning of we had to get our emissions below a certain point by this date or else we were screwed. Yeah. I don't know where this puts us. I just know that decisions like this one send us closer to not reaching those goals by 2050. Yeah. You said you don't know where it sends us, but it sends us backwards. Yeah. And like, that's ultimately where we're going, where we're headed. This was a project that should have been stopped. Um, and like you said, Alaska, like for people who are from Alaska, why would you not want this to go through? This is going to mean so many jobs and so much uh, money for the state. It's a no brainer for them. Of course they want it to go through. It's more about what are we doing to protect all the stuff we talked about last week. And I'm sure more of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode, the polar ice caps, continued warming, continued crazy storms. What are we doing to counteract that? Yeah. And, and like you said, this was one of those decisions that, that does set us back. So as a reminder, scientists say we need to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And if that can't happen, we absolutely need to stay under 2.0 degrees Celsius because that'll be bad, but not necessarily catastrophic. Every fraction of a degree counts when going from 1.5 to 2.0 and every fraction of a fraction of a degree matters above 2.0. Currently, we are on pace for 2.1 degrees Celsius of warming at the very least. Not great. Yeah, exactly. And that's why this sort of decision is just disheartening and frustrating and the protections for the rest of the Arctic are great, and I'm happy about that, but it shouldn't have come as a concession for something that, you know, in 27 years, in 2050, we are going to look back on on the Willow Project as one of those pivotal decisions that either got us to the point of no return or made it a little bit too close for comfort as we get to 2045 and 2046 and so on. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We'll look back on this and think... Was this really just a last hurrah, a fossil fuel bender? Yeah. Or was it us actually trying to get sober? We'll see. All right. We are going to take a quick break. Apologies for uh, the somber first half of the episode, but we got three more stories for you on the way back. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. 
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, vaccine could save billions of bees from deadly disease. How about that rhyme? From the BBC. So this is actually a video that we linked in the show notes. So if you want to go check it out, it's pretty cool. Um, The BBC published this and it's about a process to save some of our favorite pollinators, honeybees. The idea is that you can vaccinate the queen bee of a colony and then she will pass that immunity to the offspring that end up making up her colony. Honeybee populations are declining rapidly due to climate change, parasites and diseases. One beekeeper mentions that people are losing between 50 to 70% of their colony because of these issues. One disease is currently so contagious that beekeepers have to burn and bury the entire hive, any equipment they used on it, and the infected bees. This is the world's first vaccine for honeybees and was created in partnership between the University of Georgia and Dallin Animal Health. Unlike humans and animals, insects don't create antibodies. So scientists have long thought vaccines won't work. But it was discovered in the lab that bees have a primitive immune system and that exposing a queen bee to some of the dead bacteria through her food created immunity throughout the hive. So far, no side effects have been observed in any bees or the products that they create, like honey. There is hope that this could lead to other vaccines for different types of viruses and pests within the insect world. Super cool story. You know, anytime we're reading something and saying, Scientists didn't think this would work for a long time, but here we are realizing this could work. You know, we're seeing <laughs> a really exciting development in real time, and I'm definitely excited to to follow up, up on the story and see, you know, where this goes as more trials are are starting. Yeah, this is fantastic news. I can't imagine it's easy to get a hold of the queen bee like going i don't know like how do how do they do that i'm not sure dude beekeepers are magicians it's insane they can they can go in and just do whatever they want and they're like yes you might not be a bee but you're one of us (laughs) do what you need to do (laughs) yeah dude it's insane they like they are so nonchalant when they're like like some i feel like i've seen so many people like nothing on like they're wearing nothing they're just opening up like a beehive and like, like, yeah, there's like 158 bees in here. And it's just insane. Like they're just psychopaths. I love it. I would love to get into beekeeping when I eventually have a a yard to do so. Yeah. It it does seem like a cool hobby. I'm also, I'm not like allergic, but if I get stung, I'm like, it's not great. Yeah. Um, so maybe not the best profession for me, but yeah. Well, maybe you could build up, build up some immunity. I'll I'll watch you do it from afar. I'll have binoculars. I'll be like, is that Matt? What's he doing with the queen bee? Oh, he's keeping bees as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) So bees are more important than just to me and Nick joking around on this podcast. Bees actually pollinate around one third of U.S. crops and generate $15 billion worth of crops every single year. Wow. A bacterial disease keeps causing developing bees to die. So this vaccine could be really important to bee populations, but also to the U.S. economy, to our food security, Mm. and to people like me who really like having honey with their tea. Yeah, 100%. A third of U.S. crops. Think about that for a second. Yeah. That's a lot of corn. All right. (laughs) Our next story is titled, Iraqi Prime Minister Promises Action to Tackle Crippling Climate Change by the Associated Press. On Sunday, Iraq's Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sadani opened the two-day Iraq climate conference by stating more than 7 million citizens have been affected in Iraq and hundreds of thousands have been displaced because they lost their livelihoods. Climate change has made Iraq's issues with drought and increased water salinity even worse. 
Hospitals have seen more patients struggling with respiratory issues caused by sandstorms, and climate change has played a role in Iraq's ongoing struggle to combat cholera. Another major issue Iraq faces is that it relies on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers for nearly all of its water needs. Neighboring Turkey and Iran both have constructed dams to divert or block water, increasing Iraq's water shortages. Prime Minister al-Sadani promised sweeping measures to fight climate change, which include plans to meet a third of the country's electricity demands with renewable energy. The plan, which contains a series of measures to implement by 2030, includes building renewable energy plants, modernizing inefficient and outdated irrigation techniques, reducing carbon emissions, combating desertification, and protecting the country's biodiversity. Part of the plan includes a massive afforestation initiative, so Iraq would plant 5 million trees across the country. So, look, they're checking off every single box that you want countries to check off when we talk about reducing emissions, increasing renewables, protecting biodiversity, and also just creating more habitat by planting more trees. You know, wildlife, in theory, if that afforestation measure goes well, should be able to thrive there with more room for shade to be able to avoid the crippling heat that is faced in Iraq. So all all really good things to see there. Yeah, this is this is great news. And I've never heard the term afforestation. Is that what you said? Yeah. So that would be like building up a forest back to its like complete self. Well, that's reforestation. So afforestation is like planting drought resistant trees in this case, because Iraq has water shortages. Oh, okay. Planting more uh, trees that are, are good without getting a ton of water in areas that don't have trees already. So yeah, it's it's not rebuilding a forest, it's building a forest, which is pretty cool. So cool, awesome. Hopefully that helps someone out there like me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will. So one thing that I just wanted to point out before we move on, I think that we on this show and we as just a community tend to focus on what the largest polluters are doing. So it's really easy to focus on the U.S., the EU, Russia, China, India. It's cool to also highlight that there are nations that aren't as responsible for climate change that are going to be heavily impacted by climate change, Mm. that are already being impacted by climate change, and they are still going through all of these steps to fight climate change. So next time somebody says, well, why should we do something if they're not? They are. Yeah, they are like they're implementing this plan by 2030. Similar goals to ours, just more localized to what their region needs. So, yeah, really important story and really cool to see. Yeah, really, really cool. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is by Chris Livesey, who writes Venice canals run dry as lingering weather system, Myers tides and Alps snow shortage fuels concern for Italy's summer for CBS News. So here's an example of how climate change can severely impact a local economy in some ways that might not be immediately obvious. Venice is known for its flooding, which impacts the city's canals during every wet season. This year, a long stretch of unusual low tides has left the city with dry canals, meaning that the gondolas and those other boats that you would normally see lining the city's canals aren't able to operate. Environmental groups warned that the Alps received less than half of their usual snowfall this winter, which means less snowmelt entering the rivers nearby, decreasing their water level. Italian Environmental Association Legambiente confirmed this data, warning the Italian Alps are currently packing 
about 53% less snow compared to the average over the last 10 years. Part of the blame can also be placed on a high pressure weather system that impacted Western Europe for weeks in early 2023. Alpine snow supplies the Po River Basin, which runs through the most populous and agriculturally productive region of Italy. The Po, Italy's longest river, runs from the Alps in the northwest to the Adriatic Sea. It is holding 61% less water than normal at this time of year, also according to La Gambiente. This comes after a summer where Italy suffered its worst drought in 70 years and declared a state of emergency for areas around the Po River. Environmental scientists warn that climate change has increased the likelihood of both low and high water occurrences. This means that more low water events like we're seeing now can happen, but also intense flooding that can damage streets and storefronts can also happen. Yeah, it's just going to amplify the extremes on either end, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Luckily, some rain has hit the region since this article was written in late February, but it will take a very wet spring and summer to make up for all the water lost from low snowpack this past winter. Yeah, I mean, this this goes on the same path that so many stories that we've had on the show is. It's like climate change is going to exaggerate everything on either side. Doesn't matter. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the people who make their living literally in agriculture in that region and even just in Venice on on a micro scale, the Venice gondola drivers. Yeah. They have no work. And it's like we're getting to their peak tourism start, you know, in, in like April, May. Yeah. So you, you really got to hope for some rain and uh, I'm certainly praying for it. Yeah. And that's sort of why I think this article is so important to highlight is because when we think of the environmental fallout for, from climate change, we think of agriculture and farmland becoming more arid or coastal communities getting flooded and, you know, like the beaches start eroding and, and that's how it impacts the local economy. Yeah. This is one of those things that maybe we didn't think about at first, but like you said, those gondola drivers, they need water in the canals to be able to operate and to be able to earn their livelihood. So climate change really does impact everything. And when we say everything, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. So, you know, sad story, one that I, like you said, I, I'm really hoping we get a lot of rain, but important to bring up. Yeah. And it's another thing I want to bring up is Venice is like, they're used to the flooding. Yeah. You know, like it's something that happens like pretty much every year. And it's gotten to the point where like, there are some um, wine producers in Venice that have crops, like their grapes are completely resistant to the flooding. Like it, it doesn't matter about the flooding. The crop is resistant to it. And it, and because of it, the wine tastes, you know, way more salty or, you know, something like that. I can't remember specifically what it tasted like, but it's just a really cool thing to show like adaptation can happen, yeah, but not in the exaggerations that we're getting now, you know? Yeah. If the flooding gets way worse, it gets to a point where, you know, it's a lot harder to adapt. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We didn't really have time to get to this this week just because of the recording schedule, but sneak peek for next week. Uh, We're going to be talking about a really exciting story that is just strictly good news. The EPA is cracking down on toxic PFAS, forever chemicals in drinking water for the first time ever. Nice. So make sure you come back next Friday to hear us talk about that. Before then, this upcoming Monday, we will be back for March's interview with Dr. Ruth Backstrom, whose book Igniting a Bold New Democracy, Empowering Citizens Through Game-Changing Reform comes out March 30th. 
Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chinusa produced our show and makes all of our music. Nick, where can people give you a birthday present by giving you some more <laughs> listens? You can do that by going to soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Especially because it's his birthday. Go bump some Budlin Cape this entire weekend. Happy birthday, <laughs> Nick. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Thank you and peace.